I got a chance to take a, a boat ride to this island that was just off the coast um, and would have been a first stop before captured uh, Africans were taken to, to Gori Island, which would have been the, the closest castle to take people, like Middle Passage. But that time that I spent on that one island, um, like, I think it kind of set the stage for everything else that I did. Hello, Dolly. You're listening to the Wake Up and Show Up podcast with your host, Portia Scott. This podcast is a collection of interviews and stories, weaving together life's pivotal moments and the decisions made to show up and impact humanity, one person at a time. This week's episode is sponsored by ProjectSmithDesigns.com. I started working with Jasmine and her team almost a month ago to help me with my social media strategy, running ads for my podcast, as well as for the products that I offer in the business. This is one less thing that I have to worry about in the midst of homeschooling, being a wife, being a mom, serving a church, running a business, and the list goes on. I cannot rave enough about how awesome Jasmine and her team has been. I was able to talk through my vision, the things that I want to do, and her and her team have literally ran with. The company helps to expand the online reach and conversion for businesses, service providers, podcasters, influencers, and beyond through their social media management service. I'm gonna go ahead and plug this in as well because she does help ministry, ministry leaders, churches. So listen, if you need help, this is the team. If you're looking for social media management and maintenance, running targeted ads, email campaigns, organic engagement, web and media services, head over to projectsmithdesigns.com. You focus on your passion. Let Project Smith execute your vision online. We are officially back. Wake Up Well is back for season two. This is the show where we bring you topics to keep you informed and thriving, mind, body, and soul, as Anita Baker would say. Every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, you can find us live on Facebook at I Am Portia Scott or on YouTube at Portia Scott Media. Listen, you do not want to miss the Wake Up Well shows. We have our expert mental health professional on every single week, Martinez, Marty Sellers. And then we also have a special guest, usually an expert in a field. Set your alarms, set your calendars, set your reminders for this Sunday, December 13th at 7 p.m. We are kicking off season two of Wake Up Well. Let's wake up well together. Hello, darlings, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I am so, so excited to have our house guest this week. We have tried a couple times to uh, do this interview, and I think both times they were my fault. So I'm so appreciative that our house guest still wanted to be on the podcast. But I want to tell you a little bit about her before we bring her on. So she is a leader in impact investing and nonprofit philanthropic sector with extensive experience in development and fundraising, program design, collaboration, and partnership management, as well as racial equality advocacy. She has engaged in extensive efforts to advance the field on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She designed the SMART Investing Initiative, the first philanthropic effort to incorporate a racial equity lens in foundation and endowment practice. She has authored a number of white papers promoting policies and practice in support of this approach. I am so, so excited to welcome our house guest, Erica Seth Davies. Erica, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Like I said earlier, I know I think we tried to do it a couple of times and I think both times uh, was my fault. So I'm so appreciative that you still were like, yes, I'll be on the podcast. So thank you for that. Oh, of course. I, I support Black women <laughs> and I know what it is to try to get through these COVID times. Um, <laughs> and I think grace is all we can can offer one another to, to get through. So it's, it's definitely I, a pleasure. I'm glad we were able to make it work. I appreciate that. So one of the things I always do on the podcast is I always ask our guests what they're grateful for. So I'm going to ask you that question. What are you grateful for? Um, so I think immediately I'm grateful for um, just having stability, health, safety, um, 
uh, income, <laughs> right? Like there's like in this immediate moment, there's a lot of people that are struggling, um, and um, I am I'm grateful that um, we're stable, um, quite frankly. And I think um, broadly, um, I am I'm grateful for um, just the opportunities that I have uh, to serve at this point, um, and uh, the ability to to use whatever whatever levers I can leverage I can um, to to make change. Um, be a good ancestor. So. I love that. I love that. You know, one of the things that you talked about was so many people are out of work and we know that it definitely has hit the black community uh, just in exponential numbers, just even with contacting the disease and passing away as well as just economically. So, you know, one of the things I want to jump right in and I want to know Give me a little bit about what is the real asset lounge, uh, lab? What exactly is that? <laughs> so um, the racial equity asset lab, um, also known as the real, um, it's it's hard to describe. Like, you know, we're so used to putting things in this fixed category, this bucket, like it's a firm, it's a nonprofit. It's a, it's all of these things. <laughs> um, so I call it a venture. Um, and it is um, what I have developed based on the years of experience um, that I've had um, trying to advance racial equity and impact investing um, and just starting to learn where some of the gaps were and what some of the continuing needs in the field have been. Um, and so it was my way of trying to create a space um, for continuous conversation. So um, when I was leaving AFI and I worked at um, Baltimore Community Foundation, and um, even since then, I noticed that a lot of the conversations were episodic. They were connected to events and not necessarily um, like a space where people could, you know, go and learn and know who is doing what work and starting to, to have an understanding of what some of the strategies are that people are deploying in terms of um, moving capital, um, bringing justice to capital. Um, as such that Black people have an opportunity to, to be in the flow um, and uh, finally benefit from, from, from capital, from the flow of capital. And so um, I conceived of it um, in partnership. There have been, a, I mean, any number of people that have been really supportive. Um, I'll name um, uh, Rodney Foxworth from Common Future, who's really supportive. Um, and actually, that's where we're housed. Um, I'm a social entrepreneur in residence with Common Future. And so I'm incubating there. Um, James Walsh from the Annie Casey Foundation um, was an early supporter um, of the real and engaged um, for a project um, that we're continuing to manage. Um, Lisa Hall is now at um, Apollo, but um, at the time was um, a senior fellow at the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation um, and invited me to, to be a fellow there um, just to kind of raise the, uh, the profile and, and to provide me a platform for um, advancing some of the work on, on race um, and, and capital. And so, and there have been countless other people. <laughs> so anybody who hears it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> right. right. Eric. You. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's just been um, a bit of a journey. And um, honestly, what I learned around um, advancing racial equity and what I was learning about capital markets and what we know the history of capital is in terms of race. I was stunned that we, um, the people weren't applying some of this more intentionally, right? Like um, sort of naming and framing and being clear about the structures that were in place that were preventing opportunity. And so um, I just wanted to create that kind of a space. Yeah, I love that, Erica, it's so much because I do. We're going to kind of go back just to make sure that we completely understand. Um, just want the undertaking that you you have done. Um, and I love how you said it's a venture. We do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You do a lot of education and, and things like that. But kind of go back and what exactly, when you talk about impact investing, mm -hmm. what exactly is that? So um, about, I think maybe 20, maybe 30 years ago now, I don't know um, its origins, but um, primarily among foundations and I think some, some other types of investors, there started to be a movement um, to consider the ways in which mission was driving investment as well. And so when you look at foundations, um, very often the 95% of their assets are at work on Wall Street. So if, if I, 
private foundation as established by law um, is has a single source or at least uh, more, um, I think a third or more of its uh, income is derived from an endowment and has a single source. So by law, um, 5% of their uh, net assets have to be used for grant making and operations, or um, if it's an operating foundation, it's got to be used um, you know, for, for operate operations. Um, but the other 95% is up for investment. <laughs> and that's a, that's a lot of money, right? So that's really, actually, you have investors that do a little grant making on the side when you think about the balance of, of, of those resources. Um, and so at some point, there was starting to be a movement to look at how the mission was informing the investment strategy, right? So it became a, um, so impact investing is um, doing well while doing good kind of thing, double bottom line, where you're getting both a return, um, a, a financial return, but there's also a social return, like a social good. Um, and so you'll see um, ESG investing, so um, environmental, social, and governance are areas in which um, uh, investors can think about um, their impact. So that's one. And most of this, a lot of this work started with the environmental movement as well. So kind of looking at um, investing around uh, environmental impact, but obviously there are other social impacts. And so when I was building the, the work at APFI, the foundations that were most likely to um, embrace um, a diversity and asset management or thinking intentionally about racial equity in terms of their, their um, portfolio were the ones who are already contemplating how their mission and their values should align with their investing strategy, right? So um, it doesn't do you any good to invest in something that then makes your philanthropy necessary, right? So if you're, the majority of your assets are actually investing in things that are making that low 5% necessary, you're, you're making it worse. <laughs> so it started, you know, a lot of uh, foundations would screen out. It's, it's, it's easy to, to say, okay, we're not going to invest in private prisons, but we're not going to, you know, invest in um, arms, uh, you know, uh, uh, gun um, uh, companies or manufacturing. Um, and so, you know, similar to the divestment movement in, in South Africa. So there are all these different ways that, that that shows up. And I think it was just kind of aggregating all of those ideas into to a single single space. Uh, around impact investing. So that's that's what it essentially is. Um, foundations have a whole spectrum of capital. They can use grants. They have PRIs, which are program-related investments, which means that those can um, uh, get lower returns than market rate returns. There's mission-related investments and there's market rate investments. Like it's a whole spectrum um, of capital that they, can, that they can leverage, which makes them very unique um, in that. But really, any investor can think about what is the impact that I want to have um, with my investing. Um, all investments have impact, but is it going to be a positive or a negative one? Or ne yeah, especially in, in right the Black communities and just different minority communities. I think about the companies now that are... Um, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter is a thing and we're going to be posting and we're going to be doing all this stuff. But I think it's very important to look at those companies that are really going to put their money where their mouth is kind of thing and how, because posting isn't enough, but if you're, you know, depending on what that product is or what you can do, there's an impact that you can have, even when it comes to when we think about um, technology companies and the fact that we don't often see and I'm just specifically saying we don't often see black engineers or we don't often see black data scientists or we don't see different things. You know, we don't see a lot of black CTOs. And oftentimes the the response is, well, where are they? They're not enough. And it's and it has to do with right recruiting efforts. So just saying that kind of stuff and, and making sure that pool is large enough. And so if we bring that into kind of what you're doing um, and ensuring that the the access to capital, how they're investing, that, you know, it helps and that it assists these these communities like the black communities or these minority communities. Um, you know, I read somewhere where like roughly 1% of uh, venture that black founders uh, get like venture capital, right? Like 1%. So if we look at that, Erica, kind of, you know, it, it, it's kind of dismal, you know, and you're kind of like, what do we do around <laughs> that? Like, what is, 
You well, know, and, and that's a that's a piece, that's a particular asset class and a larger asset management. Industry, okay. Right. And so when you look at the entire asset management industry, which is about $69 trillion, um, less than one and a half percent is managed by um, people of color and women owned asset management firms. And so did you did you I'm sorry, let's just go back to that $69 trillion. dollars. Yeah. So and, and again, that's that's BIPOC and women combined. So that, that's that's white women, women of color. Yeah, all of that combined, less than one and a half percent. So that's the entire industry, like the size of the asset management industry. And so where I had started my work was looking at that in particular, like the diversity of managers that foundations were using. Because that was a fair, I thought that, I thought I was wrong. I thought that was fairly easy on-ramp um, to considering um, then how are your underlying strategies helping or harming Black communities? Um, so because the impact investing was, you know, it, it had taken hold, there was already community around that. I really focused on the access, um, who has access to, to these opportunities. And if I, in, in developing that, that initiative, if we had taken a look at um, uh, impact solely, we would have actually eliminated the opportunity to have conversations about the, the industry and the access points because there are very few, or at the time there were very few, I don't even know that there were any um, uh, Black-owned asset management firms that claimed to be impact investors because um, that's just sort of like doubling down on trouble, right? Like you're already marginalized and then you're going to operate in a space that is is not entirely embraced. So I think there's still a case to be made, like lots of um, uh, institutional investors are making a case for why we should be doing impact investing. And so it just wasn't a friendly space or, you know, for, for a Black firm that's already trying to prove itself in the main. And then, you know, we're not going to marginalize ourselves further by kind of showing up in this space. And then there were those who thought, oh, well, if I invest with a Black firm, that is an impact strategy in and of itself, which is kind of not really the case. Like, you're aligning with your values. If your values say that we value diversity, equity, and inclusion, then how you move should be reflective of that. Um, and these firms are outperforming um, the the managers that, that do get a look and get invited into the process. And so when you change the game that way, but you also pay attention to not just the ownership, but the composition of other firms and start to signal if we're seeing all white male firms come in the door, those are a dime a dozen, and, and that's that's groupthink, right? Like that's we know enough of that. <laughs> so, what is you know what what is the the diversity of the firms that are also um, entering the space? Because um, that's the only way that you're going to start to generate even more um, capacity, more firms, more opportunity in the future. Um, I don't think we have a, a pipeline problem per se. We have a network problem um, where. You know, it's a relationship-driven business. And so if you aren't building those relationships and those networks, then, it, you know, folks don't have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, one of the questions that I wanted to say is because you're kind of like just all into this. So was this your initial career choice like, to go into this? What was kind of the story behind that? Like if this wasn't your career choice, what was your initial, um, you know, career or background? So I was an English major in college, <laughs> English and African studies. And <laughs> um, when I graduated from, from college, I went to Georgetown, which has a pretty strong reputation for service. And so when I came out, I had intended to do um, the Peace Corps, which I, I didn't do. Um, but I ended up like I taught for a little bit. That did not work out. All respect to teachers. I have so much respect for teachers. I'm not one. Um, and then... Um, entered into the nonprofit space. And so I was a nonprofit um, fundraiser for years. I was a development officer and had an opportunity to work for a Black-owned asset management firm at one point. Um, I think the the founder, he, he felt that my, like the skill, what he told me is like, I can teach you markets and I can teach you how to, how to do that. But, you know, your abilities and your connections in the foundation space, I think would be useful in your relationship management. So um, I, I was a marketing associate at this firm. And I say I learned enough to be dangerous because that was the first time I had any exposure to capital markets whatsoever. Um, and so I had to learn the strategy. I had to learn their idea discovery process. I had to learn how to be able to talk about this. Um, and it was stunning because I didn't know how much money was it, it like moving. And 
like the fees that these firms <laughs> charge and what they make and like how that is building extreme wealth um, uh, within our within our society. So. Yeah. You know, Erica, I want to, and I know you're probably like, people should know this, but I, I, I really want to hone in a little bit on, you know, we talked about impact investing, but talk a little bit about uh, when you say like an asset management firm or when you talk about capital markets, right? So I think a lot of us, a lot of listeners may be saying, okay, well, you know, I save, I have my 401ks, I have these things that are going on. Talk a little bit about one, the, like the asset management and really how that does affect the wealth gap, right? Because we talk about it. And I think oftentimes we think it has a lot to do with um, career or with industry and things like that. But I think what you're talking about is really on a very larger scale mm -hmm. and looking at it a lot differently. Yeah. Um, so the, it's beyond financial literacy, right? Like a lot of times white people get blamed for not having sufficient financial literacy. Like that is not going to solve the racial wealth gap. It's, it's a piece and it's necessary, but that's not going to solve it. When you start thinking about the, the sheer volume of, of capital that is that is moving from, from time to time um, and how it just flows beyond us and past us in our communities, like I, I can manage my little 401k as best I can, but it's not going to solve the wealth gap. And so um, when, like when, um, when I started working at, at Credo, that's with Credo Capital Management. It's no longer um, in existence. But when I started working there, that's when I started to learn about institutional investing um, and um, the fact that pensions, public pensions, have to be invested because they have to grow their um, their capital so that they can meet payouts, right? Like they have these pension obligations. And so they had to pay that out. Unions and their pensions have Hartley plans, right? Like they have to be able to pay that out. Um, colleges and universities that have endowments, that's money that's invested so that it can be paid out. Um, you know, they're 5% um, every year. Same thing with private foundations. The high net worth individuals, like you get to a certain point where, you know, you're, you're not doing that on your own, right? <laughs> you're not, you know, um, or family offices, like you're not investing your money personally, you're hiring other people to do that. And so um, institutional investors, <clears throat> excuse me, fall in that category where it's, it's professionally managed um, and they are looking at a full portfolio. So the way that you might look at your own retirement portfolio, right? think about that like times a lot. Right? I know, but even looking at your own personal one, you're overwhelmed. So it, when it you, is, you know, when... and so, and, and even the, the funds in your personal portfolio, those are being managed by somebody like someone else is, um, you know, running a portfolio of um, mid-cap size companies that, you know, feeds into a larger strategy um, of, of how you're going to guard against loss, preserve capital and grow, right? And so those are the, those are the things that you're primarily trying to do. And so um, in terms of the asset management industry, there are different types of asset classes, right? Like there are different ways that people can combine those um, portfolios um, so that they are doing all of those things, right? So whether it's your your fixed income, which is going to be a low yield, right? You're not trying to knock it out the park. You're just trying to preserve. You're holding on to your to your capital there, your your equities, um, and that can be U.S. equities or um, you can be looking at um, markets um, overseas, international equities, but these are your tried and true. They're publicly traded um, uh, stocks. And so when we think about this, the stock market, those are equities, right? Like you're, you're buying a stake in different companies and the way that um, different managers will project what's going to generate um, the, the biggest returns is based on how they construct their portfolios and in and, and those equities, how long they're going to hold their the stocks and the, um, um, and the portfolio, all that kind of stuff. Um, then you have your alternatives. Um, and these are uh, privately, usually privately traded um, uh, shares of companies. So private equity, venture, and hedge funds all sit in those, um, those asset class, that asset class as well. And so and, and I'm not doing any justice to this. So anybody with. <laughs> no, but I, I, think, with like... <laughs> I think one of the things is I wanted to bring it down. Like you said, at the very beginning, uh, kind of managing, you know, your own finances and all of that, that that's not going to 
changed this, you know, this wealth gap. I mean, at the beginning there, I mean, $63 trillion, you know? So like when you're thinking on that scale and then you're like, oh, I'm trying to manage this over here to change. And yes, like you said, it's a small part, but I think understanding how that money is moving is so important and where that money goes, like you said. And so a lot of times, and the reason that we even have like black managers now is there were certain pensions, public pensions. When you think about teachers, when you think about, um, you know, firemen and police, uh, municipal workers, and you're in certain cities, those black people and those same pension trustees are like, stop bringing me all these people who don't look like me to manage my money, right? Because that's whose money they're managing. So if you are a you know, teacher, second, third generation teacher in Chicago, and you're all your money is being managed by, you know, a, a white guy from Connecticut who has never engaged, seen, or thought about Black people. And like, there's a really big disconnect. And I understand that there is like, there are so many layers to this, but to have the scale of this, this industry kind of completely off in terms of the reflection, it's reflection of the actual demographics of the country, where the people who are um, having to, to, to deal with the decisions that, that are made on Wall Street. Um, you, one, you can't tell me this is a meritocracy, because it's not. <laughs> like it, was, it was not designed to be that way. Um, and and you, you can't tell me that they are capturing all of the opportunity for economic growth, right? Because they're not- They just don't know. They just don't know, right? Like they don't even know where opportunity, or they may not see where opportunity exists because it's not part of their own experience um, to know where, you know, where they should be making investments or where they should be placing their bets. And so um, you're you're, like fundamentally, like it's just, (laughs) you're just not even getting the most opportunity out of of the market when, when you're, confined right to such a small um demographic for for that as well um and then there's just like a hyper concentration of resources with a with a small number of firms mm-hmm. and so adding diversity in in that like you said blacks you know women all of that you get different experiences That's right? right and so now you don't have for lack of a better word this cookie cutter kind of investments what we usually go to what we usually put in but now you have just this diversity of funds because of the managers that are, you know, maintaining that fund. That's right. And that's really um, when you mentioned like the VC industry, for example, I think I will look this up, but I believe I read somewhere that 60% of VCs came from like four, maybe five colleges and universities, right? Like Stanford, Harvard, Duke, maybe I forgot what the other one was. Like it's, it is a very small universe. You can't possibly capture the depth and the breadth of opportunity out here when the majority of people are coming from, right? Like less than one percent of of uh, institutions um, out here. So the imbalance that we've accepted as um, normal or people may not even realize that this is what's going on, but um, it's it's what's creating a lot of the problems. The fact that we just, we don't even know, right? And and, um, and it, that's intentional. Um, so if you, you know, what you do in the dark, nobody can question. So there's this, right? Like there's a certain intention in keeping it um, obscure and limited and um, not having a whole lot of people messing around in that that particular space, that industry. And so my work, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an investor. I'll acknowledge that. But what I can see are the structures and the policy and the practices that reinforce um, essentially white supremacy in the system, um, because that's who benefits and, and, you know, has always benefited. And that's why we are where we are right now, because that's what it was done to do, right? Like we, black people were named as chattel, um, like we were um, dehumanized so that people can maximize profit. Um, yeah, I think we're looking at so many systems and policies and and now I think we're looking at it in a depthness that says this was literally designed, it's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. Like it's, you know, and I think for so long, we just felt like it's broken. 
it's broken. It's yes, broken. because we're feeling that <laughs> we're feeling exactly what we're supposed to do. But now looking at this, it's like, but this was, this is exactly what it's supposed to do, you know? And so when you, when you were creating the smart um, investing initiative, kind of mm-hmm. talk a little bit about, about what that exactly, what that is exactly. Um, so as an initiative that I designed when I was at AppFi, the Association of Black Foundation Executives, um, the work of AppFi was to promote um, responsive philanthropy in Black communities. So all their work was focused on um, uh, foundations and um, advancing racial equity and foundation practice. And that was looking at grant making, that was looking at, you know, board um, leadership and decision making. It was looking at, you know, a whole lot of things that are important but it was not thinking about the 95%. And so um, when I started there and I brought the knowledge that I had um, from, from Credo, from the, the Institutional Asset Management Firm, I was like, hey, there's a really big racial equity issue that we are not anywhere near. Like We really have to talk about this. Um, and so landed on, did a little bit of research, um, you know, figured out that, for example, at the time in foundations, among foundations, there were four, maybe there were five. There were five Black people who had leadership roles when it came to um, asset or endowment management, and then one of them passed away while we were launching that work. And so um, there weren't even Black people who would have had networks or may have had an interest. We weren't present in that conversation um, organically. And so the work that I did at AFI was to start raising this as an issue. And so I thought once I flagged it, and was like, hey, by the way, look, here's an opportunity. Come on, let's do this. The people were like, oh, my God, we didn't pay attention. Yes, let's do this. Yay. It did not go down like that <laughs> at all. Um, and so I had to spend a lot more time on, on the education, um, uh, making the case, um, kind of pushing back on the, the bias that exists um, in that that space, um, where you know people would actually say things to me like, "Well, why would I sacrifice performance to hire diverse managers?" <laughs> yes, yes, it, it was stunning um, that that was the position that people actually had. I was like, "But you're like, you're on the board of one of the most progressive social justice or racial justice organization foundations in the country. Like, how are you holding this position? Um, but it, it helped me to understand and see the difference between charity and change, right? Like, and people would um, take those types of roles and look at the philanthropy as charity and like, oh, this is what we do, but not thinking about the business of philanthropy, which is that 95%. And that's where change needed to, to happen. Um, and so sort of try to build the demand, um, you know, writing about it, putting it on, um, you know, trying to get on conference um, agendas, um, working with regional associations, working with individual foundations, just a lot of legwork uh, to try to kind of drum up uh, conversation and interest on a topic that nobody wanted to talk about. And then, <laughs> um, and once, and, and also discovering like how much power is in the, um, in the endowment. Um, that's, that's what gives foundations a lot of their, their influence and power because they don't have a customer, right? Like there's no customer. Right. Mm-mm. It's um, the donors and, uh, there's no, um, political pressure really to put on them in the same way like public pensions had the political pressure of a public process and, and trustees. So it really was like your mission, like how, how committed to, you, um, to your mission are you or kind of tapping the, the conscience of people who are on the board or CEOs and leadership. And that's where I realized a lot of times if there were staff and, and foundations that were focused on endowment management, a lot of times that team reported directly to the board or directly to an investment committee, they didn't necessarily report to the CEO um, or you know, investment committees would make decisions and they would just sort of get signed off on by the board. There wasn't like a lot of inquiry about any of this. Um, and I, I, I don't know if I was surprised, but I was just like, oh, wow, wow. <laughs> this is, there is a lot of power in, in this, this space. Um, and very few people were at the table. Very few people sit around the table at that investment committee. Um, so 
I think that's what probably made me even more, more curious. Like, if there are so few people here, that's what I need to know about. <laughs> Y'all hiding something. What do I need to know? <laughs> um, and then I had to build demand. Um, and so that meant building relationships with um, with diverse firms and some of the natural networks in that space um, to build credibility that we were serious about doing this work to make those connections. Because we would always hear, you just said it, you know, where are they? We don't know where they are. Um, and so I was like, here they are. <laughs> um, produced a directory uh, that would um, have information about these different firms, their strategies, their ownership, where they were located, so that um, the, the the foundations that were in the membership at the time knew we were serious and knew where, you know, if, you, if you're looking for something, a particular strategy, you can find it. So yeah, that was over about seven years <laughs> um, that, that I did that work. Wow. So seven years. So now you have, you know, this initiative that you've built, you've kind of worked and, and done all of this. How is it now? You know, has, has any, is, is it any different? Has it changed? Have you seen some of the changes that just two days ago, maybe, um, the Wall Street Journal published an article um, that Yale University's CIO made an announcement that they will be considering the diversity of asset managers in their process. Um, so not just around ownership, but um, the diversity of any firm. Um, and, you know, who's managing portfolios? Are there other ownership stakes? Like really trying to, to reflect on the diversity. Um, Colonial Consulting, which is another firm um, that advises investors on their uh, their manager selection and their portfolio construction. Um, they changed their name from Colonial <laughs> um, to, right? <laughs> so can't go around, right? We are colonizers. That's not a, not a good look. <laughs> so they, they changed their name um, recently to, I think, Crucial. Um, mm. uh, I'm trying to think. There were a couple of other foundations that have made some pretty public statements. Um, you know, New York Common, for example, has always had a emerging manager program. Um, yeah, so during that time, I have seen some 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 movement, um, not as much as I'd like, because that is still under one and a half percent. But I think it's more of a normal conversation now. Like people are really having to to make a case for why not, <laughs> as opposed to having a case making a case for why. Now that said when I read, and I usually don't do this, but after I read that article in Wall Street Journal, I read the comments. Don't read the comments. <laughs> and when I read the comments, I was just like, yeah, there's still a long way to go. Um, and I, you know, still don't know how much money is actually moving. Um, but I just have to, you know, keep reminding myself, like, you, you were fighting a 400-year-old battle, and um, where you have chosen to lean in is really at the heart of the matter, um, the, that intersection between race and capital. And so, you know, manage my own expectations. <laughs> I'd like to see more, but um, yeah, that's where I'm to stake my claim. Yeah, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who are either social entrepreneurs or trying to just do good. Mm -hmm. And some of the issues are a little easier than others. I won't say easier, but it's just different. And so you bring it up that, you know, you're fighting a 400 year battle and keeping, what are some of those expectations that you kind of tell yourself, right? Cause we have people who listen to the podcast and they're, they want to do something, they want to do good. And it kind of is that this is, this uphill battle. So what is that thing that you kind of remind yourself when you say this was good? And then I read the comments and I was reminded again about, you know, or knowing that this is new, knowing that you are the black face going into these, you know, having these conversations, doing the education. Um, what's kind of what what is that expectation that you kind of tell yourself? Um that people did far harder things. <laughs> they did far more dangerous things um, than I have ever done, right? So what on earth are you afraid of, right? Like my, I mean, I, I, and 
I just had a conversation um, today about like sort of current conditions, right? Um, when you have a president in the White House that is unleashing white supremacy um, and kind of, kind of taking us back to a time where um, violence against black people was normed um, and, and, and a time where we're still kind of pushing back on state sanctioned violence um, against black people and black communities. Like I do feel under threat, right? Like I I, I feel <laughs> physically threatened in ways that I haven't throughout my life. Um, that said, I'm still I'm still safe, right? Like I, I'm sorry, like in context, I'm I'm still okay. Um, but then I think about the fact that that was not always the case. Like we had a whole migration because people were escaping terror, right? Um, and so I I just remind myself that any risk that I take right now is not the ultimate risk that people have taken in their in their lives and in our history as a people. Um, and I think the other thing, when I was 19 years old, I had an opportunity to go to um, to West Africa. I was on a, on a trip um, and went to the Gambia and had the chance to go to, to Drew Foray. And that was the home where Alex Haley traced his roots, um, as well as um, Kunta Kinte. And from there, you know, went to the village, met um, his, I think it was great, like, I don't even know how many generations removed niece. <laughs> no way. Uh-huh. Been to Kente and um, kind of saw where he would have lived. And from there, got a chance to take a, a boat ride to um, this island that was just off the coast um, and would have been a first stop before um, um, captured uh, Africans were taken to, to Gori Island, which would have been the the closest um, castle to, to, to take people like Middle Passage or No Return. And so I did that as well. But that time that I spent on that one island, um, like I think it kind of set the stage for everything else that I did because it was very clear to me, or I came to understand in that moment um, that I was never supposed to be here. I was never supposed to come back. Like I, I as this free Black woman, was never supposed to exist in this way. And so... Um, it grounded me in in ways that I have literally never forgotten because um, somebody survived such that I could. So the things that we deal with, yep, frustrating and <laughs> um, harmful and hurtful, um, but we are made of we're made of those people. <laughs> and I, I mean, like I, I I got nothing else but the. Um, I, I have to be a good ancestor too. So that's that's what I remind myself again. Like, yeah, y'all are real crazy, but this is a 400 year old problem. <laughs> it, it, it truly is. And it was made up. So we can unmake and make something new. So my job in this moment is to try to either clear the space for what is new or to start, you know, helping people imagine what comes next. What could be. Yeah. I love that. You know, so much of what we do is often tied to the exposure, the experience we had as children. And, um, and I mean, I knew you were, uh, pretty much an adult, but that is, that's an experience that like, that does level you, right? Like you see all this and even you do think about it, you know, it's funny, we, we live in Georgia. So there you go. Um, and so when you say you're going to, and honestly, when we, we had been to the, we had been to the cabins up here before. Um, but this was maybe about six years ago. So, you know, kind of different timing. Um, and we, we knew, you know, we were like, okay, we may not see any of us this time when we drove up, it was a very different drive. And we, we drove with a little more sense of, let us be careful about our surroundings of certain signs and things that you would see now, it's more pronounced. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of, you're just kind of on edge, but like you said, it's uncomfortable. But then you think about Alex Haley, you think about all, you know, you think about all of that and you're like, okay, I can do this. Um, so I just love how you how you paint that picture, but it it, it is a, a battle that you're fighting. But we are all so grateful um, that you are in this and that you're making that space and that you're making this known because it's almost like ignorance. It isn't bliss, 
but it has been for so long that we just didn't know. And so having your message out so people can say, wait a minute, what? How much money? (laughs) How much money is being passed? And I don't know if, you know, in our generation, if we'll close that wealth gap, but, um, what does that what does that look like? You know, I know you have a little one. And so when you think about, you know, what you're leaving to her and how you want to leave, um, you know, your legacy to her, what does that closing that gap look like? What does the education look like? Sure. Um, I actually have two. There's a boy. <laughs> you just happen to see the girl. Right? <laughs> Um, so um, I, I do think about that and, um, you know, I, I, I believe I've set things up so that they, they as individuals will be okay, right? Like I've, I've been intentional about um, my estate planning. Get your estate plan, people. <laughs> Make sure you're you know, leaving something for your kids. Make sure there's life insurance. Because um, those are the things that um, even though we don't have the same assets, but those are the things that can give a head start um, to make sure that there is an insurance policy and it's sufficient, not just to bury you, but to make sure that people can start a business, buy a house, go to college, whatever the case may be. Like, those are some of the things that we that are within in, in our control to, to make sure our next generation has opportunity for. Um, and so that's like, I guess, immediate in terms of what I've done. I try to, and they're sick of me. Oh my, they're so sick of me. Because I'm talking all the time about, about structural racism and kind of pointing out these, you know, these all these vestiges of, of this system, not even vestiges, like the ways in which it's alive today. Um, and try to help them um, understand um, that they have an obligation to pay attention to that. No matter what you do, you, you still have to be trying to make space and make opportunity for other people. Um, and so we happen, like they attend private school and it's a school that I had, had attended actually. So they're like first, this is the first generation of, of black students, their legacies at, at this, this particular institution. And so um, having conversations with them about that, right? Like, I think y'all are brilliant. But let me be clear, <laughs> this is how this stuff works. Um, and um, you need to you need to know that. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm having an existential crisis because <laughs> this, is, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Like, was, <laughs> so, but, and, you know, nonetheless, how do we, how do we navigate um, those types of things? And, and, and hopefully the, the way that I have lived my life and, and raise them gives them permission to to explore the things that they are passionate about and they care deeply about, um, and will um, do that with um, with equity at the heart um, that that they are um, kind of moving with a with a racial justice passion. Um, so I can't tell them, you know, it's got to be in medicine, it's got to be in finance, it's got to be in the arts. I have no idea because uh, they they try everything, you know, <laughs> and and I let them. Mm-hmm. And and they will explore their next dream once these eight weeks on this one have passed. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> You're out your dream in eight weeks, but um, you know I hope that they that they they do whatever it is that that is a mechanism for them to pursue justice. Um, right. Yeah, and again, they're probably sick of hearing me talk about. It. <laughs> They'll appreciate it when they get older. Now they're sick of it, but you know they'll appreciate it when they get older. So, um, Erica, I'm going to um, ask you one last question. I kind of ask everyone this, but I want you to paint the picture that um, all of your efforts, you've you've been able to help so many people and educate, and we're closing that gap, and we're seeing... Uh, more diverse wealth managers and all the stuff that you have been doing, you were able to do that. Your kids are no longer aggravated about you talking about it, but they're even doing their part. Right. Um, What is the thing that you're most proud of? Uh, (laughs) The thing I'm most proud of. um, That's a, and you even told me you were gonna ask me this question. I did. I put it on there. <laughs> and I was so trying to I think always ask, I, 
it's almost like painting the picture of you kind of looking back at your own life, you know, and you've been able to accomplish all this and just the thing that you're, that you're most proud of. And you can take a minute. It's completely fine. Um, I think, well, with the, you know, obviously with the kids, if they take full advantage and they, they do amazing things and like I said, but they are always grounded in centering, centering justice. I would be proud of that. Um, I think in terms of the work I do, if, um, if if I have in some way, shape, or form inspired people to to interrogate what's around them and do differently, um, just to question this system that is working as it was intended to, um, and so just to have a, an, an awareness of that, and then to start to question so that we can move things differently because it's it's needed everywhere. Like there's literally not one corner that has been untouched. Um, by this this racist system. And so how do we um, undo that? That just requires constant vigilance and inquiry and interrogation. And we, that's not right. And looking at, at the outcomes um, to say, how's this going to, is this going to hurt or help Black communities? Because if you go all the way, you know, following that equity all the way through, when you do that, you, ha- you help everybody. Um, mm-hmm. So that that becomes normed, if that is normed in any way, shape or form, then um, I will be proud that I had something to do with that, that I had done something. <laughs> like I didn't take my own privilege um, and, and access for granted um, and that I used it um, in a way that created some change somewhere. And I love that. that. Yeah, I love these kids, but they're gonna be all right. So how do I how do I do something um, in a way that that creates more opportunity for more people? Yeah, I love that, Erica. Thank you so so very much for being a guest on the podcast. I mean, I learned so much, and I'm like, I was taking notes. If you saw me writing, it was literally because I was taking notes um, because there's some things I want to follow up on. So thank you so much for just sharing with us, and thank you so much for just the impact that you're making. Portia, thank you so much for inviting me. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, we were going to do this because I was like, I love the the idea of, of your podcast when I, when I was reading about it. And so, um, again, thank you for, for having me. Um, it's definitely been a privilege to be here. Love your energy. Love the wood in the back. <laughs> um, please reach out if there's anything I can do. Oh, I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll leave you with this. If you wish to move mountains tomorrow, you must start lifting stones today, an African proverb. As always, we end every show with this declaration. Waking up is automatic. Showing up is intentional. Today, I will show up. Thanks again for spending time with me today and listening to the Wake Up and Show Up podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe so you never miss a show, leave a five-star review, and share with a friend or foe. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I am Portia Scott. Until next time, go impact the world.